Welcome to Outdoor Explorer and Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Paul Twitter. Seth Kantner's new book, A Thousand Trails Home, Living with Caribou, details his life immersed in the caribou, hunting, and gathering. Seth joins me by phone from Kotzebue to discuss growing up on the Kobuk River with his parents and brother in a sod house, living miles from the nearest village and learning to live from the land they've set a front row seat to the rapid changes happening in the Arctic. Stay tuned for Outdoor Explorer and my interview with Seth Kantner. It's late November, and we have Seth Kantner calling in from his home in Kotzebue. Welcome to the show, Seth. Oh, thanks, Paul. Hey, I really enjoyed reading your book, A Thousand Trails Home. I learned a lot about real life, and I'm very impressed with your descriptions of the landscapes and people of Northwest Alaska. Do you want to give us a little overview of the book to start things off here? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess uh, you saying you learned a lot is uh, kind of what I was after as far as uh, writing this, um, um, to describe life here and, and then our, our uh, local connection to uh, caribou and the, and the land and, and food from the land. And, and, of course, not just local. I guess I was kind of curious about everyone's connection to uh, meat and hunting and food and, and all that. Um, I started about nine years ago on the words, the text, and probably 30 years of, uh, you know, working on the photographs. Um, <clears throat> uh, wasn't sure what I was going to do as far as what to say or how to say it. I just started thrashing around in the willows, so to speak, uh, uh, putting down my thoughts and, and feelings and information about caribou. And pretty quick, I ended up dividing it up a lot like my life, which is, uh, you know, based on the seasons and uh, what the animals are doing at different times of year. So I start with the um, <clears throat> fall time, which in my, uh, especially my younger life, that was the, the beginning of the year as far as humans and animals, everything gathering, getting ready for the big winter ahead. And um, so I have four, four sections starting with fall. And then um, throughout that, I also have a, a lot of other um, trails of, um, of history and then my own uh, family's history and, and then, you know, uh, information about caribou that just themselves. Uh, and it just kept getting more and more complicated. It's hard to even <laughs> <laughs> describe it without throwing in a cuss word or so. But, um, you know, somewhere in there I had to include uh, um, the change in uh, land status uh, here in the region. And so... I could go on and on about that. It just uh, turned into a, a bigger project than I planned, and um, I actually am surprised uh, how well it came out. I didn't think it was going to be quite as good as it turned out. Yeah, I was uh, super impressed, uh, as I said, especially with your photos, and I'll, I'll get back to that in a, in a minute. Uh, tell us a bit, for those people who aren't familiar with your life, sort of um, your life, like a little bit about your story. Um, I was born in a uh, sod igloo along the Kobuk in uh, 1965 and uh, about 25 or 30 miles from uh, uh, the village of Ambler. At that point, um, Ambler was uh, small and, you know, hunkered close to the ground as far as, uh, you know, subsistence living and then you know, pretty much cut off from outside in the winter. And um, 
and so everything was focused on the land, and, and then, of course, the most important animal was caribou, as far as uh, furs for the parkas and mukluks and sleeping skins and all that. Um, <clears throat> as the years went by, more and more change came north, and, you know, the first phone came to the village, and then satellite TV and, and more airplanes and more stuff, and, and so I was pretty interested in, um, in how we've changed our connection to caribou but are still very connected um over the years i guess i uh, uh i couldn't hunt every day uh, like i did as a kid because you know more technology came more snowmobiles and and, and guns and, and stuff and and then less need for food and furs so that's when i switched to uh not switch but incorporated photography so i continued to uh, hunt and and trap and gather berries and furs and whatever else firewood, but but uh, also got really into photography as far as um, um, gathering gathering also and and then somewhere along the line I accidentally uh, got into writing and, and that became gathering stories and so I see my life as not uh, changing a huge amount in, in the sense of that connection to the land, uh, focus on the on food and seasons, and, but, uh, but mixing modernity in with the, the old ways. When, uh, not today, I guess I, I am dating you a little bit. When, when were you born in the uh, early 60s? When does this, your life uh, out there start? I was born in, uh, in, in uh, 1965, which um, isn't that important unless you lived here and, and uh, yeah. that's right about when snowmobiles arrived uh, in the Arctic and that was uh, in my book I described that as being um, as big of uh, a change as when guns uh, rifles first came north uh, just the, the change in um, relationship with the land that that uh, snowmobiles uh, you know they, they made a, this emphasis on cash and um, and then maybe lack of emphasis on dogs, which were eating from the land. And uh, so a huge change. And then, you know, also huge changes as far as relationships with caribou, because before that, you couldn't chase down a caribou, no matter what you wished. <laughs> I guess <laughs> yeah. you could with a, with a uh, outboard motor in the water or a kayak or something, but, but on the land, you couldn't. And, and the same with wolves and wolverines. So a lot of large... Uh, changes were taking place uh, right about you know when my life here started um, yeah i guess to answer your question uh, uh, a little bit further back so my parents were uh you know white people from ohio and, and they didn't know each other there uh, met at university of alaska and then at that point there was sort of a little bit of a back to the land movement going on um i'm not quite sure all the the, the pressures of the 1960s and the lower 48, but <clears throat> so my dad came up before statehood and was really, uh, really liked uh, the life here, but then went further north and, and really, really admired the, the old uh, Inupiaq uh, uh, lifestyle. And uh, so the, they were sort of, uh, the best way to say it is they were basically facing the past, very interested in the old ways while while uh, uh, a lot of the villagers and other uh, people were facing the, the future. And so I was kind of raised, <laughs> uh, sometimes I say with my head in the sand, but 
you know, in other ways with uh, um, just uh, facing uh, facing the past and, and uh, trying to learn about hunting and skins and furs and wolf tracks and all that and, and um, not as interested as in algebra and, and uh, all that stuff. You um, lived, uh, uh, it seems like your family lived um, quite the true subsistence or whatever you want, hunter-gathering lifestyle. And you grew up with yeah. that. Yeah, it's a very interesting once you start thinking and examining it more. I, my dad was adamant about how a steady job would ruin your life. And he, <laughs> he, uh, he didn't want things, everything that cost uh, money, we called it store-bought, was, uh, had to be discussed a lot, whether you're going to spend a few pennies on something and and then stuff from the land, not store-bought stuff, was, um, was uh, we were more comfortable using, you know, caribou or, or ducks or seagull eggs or whatever. Um, and so um, later on, I realized a little bit of that was just my dad's absolute desire not to have to go somewhere and make money. Um, hmm. that, uh, it, uh, yeah, they're very idealistic people, but in the other other sense just really uh, focused on keeping life simple and um so i always say that if somebody dropped a, a honda generator out of the sky we probably would have uh, pulled the starter and had more light than we did with our kerosene lamps but but my dad didn't want to go somewhere and get a job to buy that stuff you know yeah uh, when at some point you i mean a lot of kids are like, I'm out of here, right? They, they, what do you call it, rebellion or curiosity or whatever, they want to leave, but you became um, quite focused on hunting. Uh, what, any insight into that? Like, And you're still at it, I think, correct? Yeah, it wasn't just hunting, but just the, I'm kind of enamored with this land in, in all different ways. Uh, um, my brother was, it's interesting you say that, my brother was always leaving uh, and really into uh, uh, studying and physics and math and electronics and uh, super smart. And um, uh, he got on the plane to UAS when he was 17 or 18 and basically he's never come back. And um, I think if I had fit in a little better in the States, maybe there would have been a little chance of that, but... I didn't fit in very well down there, and so I uh, kept coming back as soon as, uh, you know, May 6th or whenever the UAF, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, as soon as the end of the school year came, I'd be back, but that only lasted a year and a half, and then I dropped out anyway. So, But I did, I did go back to Missoula and finish a degree. It was just pretty hard for me to want to be away from the Arctic. When you, um, you know, I, 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 in the book, there's a lot of, um, uh, it's a, like a mini tutorial on, on hunting and skinning and preparing meat and, and different things. It's a wonderful read. Do you think you're, but at the same time, you're a wonderful writer. Your sentences are well crafted and the photography is great. Do you think you're those things that, um, involve hunting, watching, listening, smelling, you know, being around the land. Does that, did that also help your writing? Did, see what I'm getting at? Did that, is there a relationship there with the writing, the photography, and the hunting? Absolutely. Um, 
one thing I say about photography is that um, I, I really loved it because there's so much light hunting, but then there's this uh, amazing demarcation that takes place where you sneak and sneak and sneak to get close to some otter or musk ox or something, and, and you, you press the, the, the firing button on your camera, and, and you have a shot, and nothing uh, erupts like when you when you pull the trigger. You know that that whole that whole sneaking and uh, stalking of an animal or animals is is kind of over once you start shooting it. Um, so photography was amazing in that way because you take a picture and then you keep on trying to get closer and trying to get another shot. Um, so it was like hunting uh, magnified. Um, and then much harder because you can't exactly get a picture of a fleeing rear end of a wolf and, <laughs> and call it a good photo. Um, so that was photography. And then as far as writing, yes, uh, that's, that was very true too in the sense that um, just um, I really wanted to, I always want to describe things as perfectly as I can. I think it's because I care about the land and the, and the animals and stuff here and I want people to feel that and so I want to do I want each word to do a, uh, as much as it can to, to describe that what, I, what I'm seeing and hearing and smelling it <clears throat> and so uh, the sad part is that I'm just so incredibly slow at writing that each sentence I, I say I write it 900 times each and I think I'm under exaggerating I think it's usually more than that <laughs> um, and, and I'm very suspect of uh, wasting anybody's time with uh, any of my words so I want um, everything to be as as best as possible before I hand it out yeah that's fantastic this is Paul Tordak uh, we're, this, you're listening to the Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media I have Seth Kantner from Kotzebue with us today talking about his book uh, Thousand Trails Home uh, one thing that I've uh, you talk about in the book a bit about is uh, uh, you're uh, being a hunter and also a dyslexia, talking about difficulty writing, and I can totally um, empathize with that. And I've, I've heard there's sort of a connection between the two, um, you know, that uh, I don't know if this rings a bell or, with you or not, but uh, that hunters are um, scanning and always looking and not um, necessarily uh, 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 super focused. Is that ring a bell with you at all? And, and then with the dyslexia part? Well, yeah, I hadn't really thought about the hunting part, but, but as far as writing goes, there's, there's, a, there's a weird, uh, ironic connection there that I didn't understand until probably two or three years ago I read a book called The uh, Dyslexic, Dyslexic Advantage, and it's just describing how you're, when you're dyslexic, your brain works in a different way, and you, you often get accused of being stupid, but it's just because you're not as good at some of the standard testing mm -hmm. um, equations there. Um, but, yeah, so I have a really hard time writing. On certain days, I can't remember how to spell die, and it, that sounds like an exaggeration, too, but it's not. It's just um, it, things just ball up in my brain, and, I, and uh, I've spent 20 minutes trying to figure out how to spell a went and, and, and assume went has to be W-H-E-N-T, um, and, um, and so spelling is, is atrocious for me and, and, and wastes a lot of my time. Um, and then, um, 
I just get things uh, backwards and confused and uh, can't remember words. And, and so all that's uh, tough, very tough. I never learned to type or, or those type of things. Um, but then maybe on the other side, subconsciously, uh, I am able to come out with a, a statement that is just succinct and, and um, sort of not the normal way of, of stating it that, that might work uh, perfectly to describe something. So I feel like it's a, it's a mixed bag as far as you know, what I got and didn't get as far as this brain. Yeah, that's uh, so well said. And that to anybody that has dyslexia or has a kid with it, uh, this book is very inspiring to read because your writing is very well put together. I want, let's get into the book and the content of the book a little bit. Uh, I, you were, uh, had a lot of, um, were influenced by elders, and I'm particularly struck by some of the women elders, uh, Minnie Gray and uh, um, talking about respect for wildlife and animals, and then the, I really like the Being Lucky story from Nina Harvey and Melda Black. You want to talk about that for a minute? Yeah, that, um, as far as the, the elders go, I, I think there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding in our country now as far as what hardship can do for you. Um, and as Americans, we're scared of hardship or we consider it a bad thing. But if you went back to um, something like Minnie Gray's life and, and the um, absolute crazy hard times that people lived through, um, it just made a, uh, uh, for some people, you know, a purity of spirit and also of, uh, I guess, their, their way of looking at the world and their, their vision of, of uh, especially value, I think. I think the value of uh, small things and, and simple items is, uh, is lost on us nowadays. And um, people have an impossible time realizing um, the value of a, piece of string or axe handle or, <laughs> or the axe for that matter. Um, and so if you went back enough and didn't have to probably be elders here, it could be, you know, anywhere, but if you went back to people that have experienced hardships and, and, and experienced, uh, you know, times without such, uh, quantities of food and stuff and warmth and <laughs> everything else. And <laughs> just, uh, I just find you could learn so much from these people, and then, and then, of course, somewhere along the line is this learning empathy and uh, and uh, the old uh, gen generosity that that uh, was so important in the Arctic. Yeah, yeah, the generosity that you talk about is incredible. The uh, people, uh, the sharing, and how important that is in the, that culture. Yeah, my dad tells a story from <laughs> up at Cape Thompson in the uh, 60s, I guess, the late 50s, or uh, early 60s, I think it was, of, um, you know, living in that sod uh, igloo with uh, uh, Willard and Mabel and, um, and how people stopped in. And, um, of course, they, the, the law of the North is you, you have to welcome everybody and they, they stay as long as they want. But, he, you know, he laughed, too, about how they uh, kind of ate him out of house and home and then and then moved on. And so um, I'm sure it was, uh, you know, a complex world in a simple way. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And your father, right, he, he sort of showed up. He had this idea that he was going to go to this cabin, and he showed up, and there were people there, and they invited him in, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a uh, pretty crazy story. But, you know, that's um, kind of the way my uh, my life was. You know, people would you'd just hear the dogs barking, and there would be somebody there, and you'd shovel off the door, and in they'd come, and never really knew how long they were going to stay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you... Um, had some stories about uh, back to the elders um, about the uh, women. I, I, you had this comment that I want to maybe you could elaborate on a little bit about the elder women having a magical way. Use the word magical with uh, making things and, for instance, from skins. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit? That that concept of how what they have. Oh, yeah, I thought you were going to say a magical way of telling stories. Well, right? that too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, whole other subject. But, yeah, but, um, I guess when you when you work with skins, uh, you can realize just how uh, almost terrifying it is to take this greasy item and, and try to keep it from rotting or slipping or, um, or getting hard as a piece of plywood and, and to make something like that into a, you know, a pliable pan uh, uh, skin is, is amazing for starters, but then to be able to take something like um, a wolf skin after you've, you've done that and tanned it and then, um, you know, cut tiny little strips and sew them together in a perfect manner to make a, a sunshine ruff, which is this women's ruff that, uh, that, uh, that the long guard hairs of the wolf stick, uh, up uh, vertically and then so you know otter and wolverine to that it's just um it's hard to call it anything other than magical yeah yeah it's very impressive well let's go to the story the magical story part follow up with that uh explain that and how how it was obviously very important in your upbringing um explain how and why um, yeah, that's, I'm, I'm finding that really interesting. I spend an absolute ton of time by myself now, and then um, a, a bunch of time uh, up at the old sod house, uh, uh, also by myself, but, you know, cut off from any people. And I really miss those uh, kind of steady storytelling sessions we'd have hmm. where people would stop, and that's what you did. <laughs> Sit around and tell stories, and... Um, and the same thing, you know, if you're waiting on uh, um, salmon or, or caribou or something, a, a lot of storytelling. And um, I think it, uh, I think it's underrated uh, in our lives now. I think there's a lot of important things about telling stories and, and sharing stories, and and so I'm I'm missing that late, uh, greatly, and then also at the same time feeling like I'm I'm losing my stories every once in a while. I remember a lot of them involved humor and uh, you know friendships and and people passed on and um, so yeah. And then back to the you know the the native uh, <laughs> way of telling stories. Uh, often uh, you know white people want information, and they'll be like, uh, "How far is?" Uh, how far is that upriver to where you pick cranberries? And the, 
Native off, uh, answers often something along the lines of uh, not too far um, <laughs> or uh, six or seven bends or, or some non-numerical answer that you know, can drive these uh, quintessential white people crazy. And, and, and uh, on the vein of storytelling, the, uh, you know, the Native ways often, uh, uh, my best example is up at Nina Harvey's there is like, you know, asking her, Nina, are you going to plant a uh, garden this summer? And she starts talking about ducks, and I like to have duck soup, duck soup. And um, well, I'm often busy or think I'm busy and wanting to get my work done, so I'm running the garden project in the spring and wanting to know if she's going to plant a garden. And she starts talking about ducks, but but if you give her time, she'd get back around to <laughs> answering your question. It just involved the story and maybe sitting down eating some duck soup. And um, so, um, yeah, if you look at that from a little different perspective, it's uh, actually pretty amazing. Do you think, and we'll talk a lot about the changes uh, a little later, do you think part of the lack of storytelling is from all the changes, you know, mostly technological? Does that influence um, that? Yeah, I think there's, um, it's hard to say, you know, just becoming a hermit doesn't mean that anybody else is, so I don't know, but I do yep. see uh, a lot of people staring into their phones, and I see myself staring into the phone, and um, I think if I'd had a phone 40 years ago to play with, I probably would never would have written any books, so um, I do sense a, uh, a change in attention span, and and also, I, there's something about uh, texting and, and uh, messaging and some of that stuff that I feel like is uh, is releasing some pressure that would go into a story and instead goes into this five or six word uh, little piece of nonsense. Yeah, and yeah, I think that's so true that you um, that we've got more and more screen time, as they say, and. Um, whether we're just not sharing things or share things by video, it seems like, and photos uh, more than orally. Yeah, there's a, there's something really weird there that I could feel, and I haven't tried to describe it yet, but when I go upriver, my phone doesn't work, and I'm always very grateful. At first, I'm a little twitchy and, and wish it would work, but, uh, but it doesn't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, um, but anyway... Um, yeah, I, I noticed uh, a bunch of strange things, and this summer they asked me to, my publisher asked me to, to post on Instagram, which I hadn't done before, and then more on Facebook, and and I I feel like it's all a, this wall between me and the, the natural world, which uh, clutters up my brain in, a, in an indescribable way and makes me feel very, very far from home. Yeah, I noticed when uh, here at APU, when we take um, students out and they take them a day or two to get away, we go up on the Yukon and canoe the Yukon, and they, it takes them a few days to all of a sudden stop looking at their phones, and usually it's when their batteries run out, and, they, and by the end of it, they've, it's almost, it's, it's like a intervention for a, a addiction or something. <laughs> they, yeah, they really, the yeah. batteries run out. Batteries running out is a good analogy of uh, what's coming our way. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <So> exactly. <laughs> when the batteries run out, we'll, we'll be done with the phone. 
Uh, this is Outdoor Explorer. I'm your host, Paul Tordock. We're talking with Seth Kantner about his book, A Thousand Trails Home. We'll take a short break and be right back uh, more with Seth. You're listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. Find the show anytime as a free podcast in the iTunes store or connect with us online at alaskapublic.org. Welcome back to Outdoor Explorer. I'm your host, Paul Tordak, and I'm with Seth Kantner, uh, author of A Thousand Trails Home. Uh, Seth, uh, t- let's talk about publishing a bit. And the uh, PR is probably not something you've ever grown up in a sod home that you're used to. Um, you want to talk about the book a little bit and that process? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I guess it probably bounced back to uh, Ordinary Wolves, my novel. And when that came out, I want to say it's 2004. This is all new territory to me, and they told me I was going to have to do readings, and of course I had to read <laughs> in front of people. And growing up out on the river there, it was crazy. To, you know, when we saw people, we were all excited, and uh, travelers reach out, you know, excited about seeing people. And so to go to the states, as I still call it, and, and have. Um, uh, you know, all these eyes, it wasn't, you know, huge crowds usually, but, you know, eyes all pointed at you, looking at you, and then to stand up there and not start shaking horribly and <laughs> have my tongue, tongue stick to <laughs> inside of my mouth. <laughs> yeah. So that was a, a real learning experience. And then and then they set me loose to on these book tours, driving a car in the Chicago and stuff. Which oh, boy. I don't think... I don't think yeah, I don't think I could do that now, but I can't believe I survived. Uh, I think that's where all this gray hair came from. Uh, terrifying, and then dyslexic. You know, I don't know the difference between those signs that say "Don't go this way" or "That way." So you know, we turn on the wrong one-way street, and there's a bunch of yellow eyes looking at you. Uh, crazy. Yeah. So all that was pretty tough. And then, as far as now, publishing is. You know, it's not just me. It's, it's the industry's changing fast, and it's it's almost maybe like the music industry where it's hard to figure out um, where the any money is for the the writers and uh, yeah. and how to you know how to compete, how to sell your book, and um, and I'm not into competition and not into shouting hither and yon about myself, and so yeah, that part is is, is super maddening, and then. Um, I have a lot of Alaskans that are uh, really loyal supporters of my writing, but then as I try to get the word out further east, uh, it, uh, it feels impossible. Yeah. Well, it's an excellent um, description, as far as I can tell, and the little that I've seen of life in the bush in rural Alaska. So I think it's an important book in that respect uh, because of the changes that are going on, as you say in the book, that Northwest Alaska is ground zero for climate change and um, something that uh, everybody should be concerned about or or at least paying attention to. Um, The thing that fascinates me that really came home when reading your book was how quickly things have changed. Uh, Really, within 100 years, 
um, we, they, the, the, the culture went from uh, no mechanized travel uh, and, or, or little, very little and fewer no guns to what we have now. Um, uh, you want to elaborate on that some? Yeah, so the, the two uh, separate things coming together, one is, uh, or three or four, <laughs> modernity just coming and bringing all this stuff, which is, uh, is kind of a huge deal if you consider how uh, uh, tough things were without all that 100 years ago. Um, and then climate change, I, you know, I, I can't quantify much uh past 50 years ago, I'm, I'm 56, um, but um, that's changed so much here. And then um, one of the things I'm realizing talking to people in the lower 48 is, is our connection here to food and the land sort of makes it more obvious because, you know, if the caribou don't come when they used to or the, there's no blueberries or, or et cetera, um, or on the other end of the spectrum, if the spruce trees are growing like crazy, so there's all that firewood, um, <laughs> and you're just more aware, more aware of it. And um, and the changes here have been um, uh, actually getting close to terrifying. Um, probably the biggest being um, like rain blizzards in winter, which uh, here in the Arctic we've always acted like snow is a powdery friendly thing and uh Uh snow is a whole different subject and so rain in the winter has always been uh, terrifying um and then uh you know because there's no roads we travel on ice and then if there's no ice then then what do you do Uh, or if it's dangerous and thin and um of course that affects the animals too and so it's kind of this big snowball of um of things affecting things um and i do notice when i go to the states especially starting uh, when my novel came out and, and try to uh, shout about or complain about or suggest about uh, climate change, I, I bumped up against a, a lot of blank stares and uh, people weren't experiencing it. And then they, they do have a cushion of uh, technology and, and stuff between them and nature to a certain extent. And, and so I found it, uh, it tough to try to get my, my concerns across and, and so, sadly enough, I think these new uh, forest fires and, and uh, tornadoes and or hurricanes, all that stuff that's taking place, uh, is making it easier to uh, get my message of what the changes we're seeing here across to people down there. Um, so, yeah, the, the careful book fits in with that because I really want people to. Uh, to read and learn about caribou, but not just as this distant um, animal, but more as a sort of a analogy for, for you know protecting the planet and caring about the planet and, and uh, realizing that these uh, fellow creatures of ours are in grave danger. Yeah, and I think it's a particularly important message to Alaskans and urban Alaskans uh, because uh, I I generalize that people are aware of caribou. A lot of people will hunt the Nelchina herd or um, go watch them. And they're, uh, so I think the message of the dramatic changes going on to the herds is in your book is is uh, relevant to Alaskans. Yeah, I think you're right. I'm never willing to let us, us as in 
uh, uh, rural people uh, off the hook mm-hmm. while blaming urban people. I, I know it's nice to blame other people and comforting, but I'm never willing to let us off the hook here. We are uh, equally responsible and culpable and, and all those other things. And I, I know here there's often uh, a short thought process that, that blames uh, change and and lack of this or that on on outsiders and and one of the things I wanted to uh, or hope to to get across with my book is to remind uh, local people that our actions uh, affect caribou and, and the land you know is uh, also um, not just other people yeah. Can you talk a bit, let's go back to 100 or so years ago. I found it fascinating, uh, the history. It's, it's a bit of a, a history book also uh, about that part of the world, northwest Alaska, starting with the introduction of planes, well, really um, the Russians and then the whalers coming in, the gold miners and then airplanes, and how fast that changed things, the airplane. Yeah, it is. It is uh, some of that I wanted to, well, what I wanted to say was the herd crashed before, uh, watch out, it could happen again. Yeah. That, 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 that covers it pretty much fully, <laughs> but, and that's why I went back in history and, and wanted to learn about what took place, which I, I didn't know. I, I knew some of it, but certainly not as much as I wanted to know. Um, yeah, that's uh pretty amazing but also i think if you if you wandered around the planet and, and checked out history you'd see where humans have um, caused uh, great changes or, or, or drastic damage in a big hurry because of uh, guns or firewood or <laughs> need for food or something and i was uh, my dad texted me yesterday and i'm living in this little shack and and it's very cold very uninsulated and i keep shoving everything i can in my little junkie stove and so my dad texted and said you're reminding me of Hudson's Bay stories where their clothes froze to the wall and they cut every tree for 40 miles and um, it's your uh, well it made me laugh in some sense but um, sure kind of brought back the memories of that uh, you know just uh, needing firewood needing dog food just sort of that harsh simplicity of my uh childhood yeah i was real uh, interested in in how uh all of us have interacted with uh with caribou and and it's just once again it's it's just an analogy for our relationship with nature yeah for those are, are unfamiliar the, the listeners that the caribou herds um we always at least in in probably the last 20 or 30 years, think of them as being pretty robust, and they weren't. They uh, sort of disappeared um, and then uh, have, have come back. And some part, uh, my impression from the, your book is that they came back because of, um, of a combination of things, uh, like less fewer dogs to feed if you're not using sled dogs um, and you have a, a snow go or snow machine, uh, uh, reindeer coming in and having an alternative a food source, um, and who knows what else, right? Yeah, that was, um, the crash was in the late 1800s, and uh, most likely because of the introduction of, of uh, widespread use of guns, 
uh, and then uh, more more pressure on the on the herds. But um, but they uh, they're uh, coming back is is complicated. You know, somewhere in there was uh, uh, less pressure because of reindeer and and maybe more uh, uh, pressure on uh, wolves and, and predators mm-hmm. and lots of forces. Um, and then when snow, snowmobiles came in, you know, in my young life, then people needed cash, so that put more pressure on fur bearers um, and, um, because people, that was how you got cash back then. Now there's so many other ways, but that was sort of the big way back then. And um, so, um, yeah, to tell the truth, I found uh, poking at it in my writing to um, be pretty interesting just well, I always say that when I want to <laughs> write something, that's, that's it. Uh, I end up learning how I feel about it, but then learning, I learn, I have to learn in the process of writing this stuff, and so uh, it's, uh, it's good for me in that it, sense. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Paul Tordak. We're talking with Seth Kantner about his book, um, A Thousand Trails Home. One of the, we talk about changes, um, we have this, uh, really, they're really focused on the caribou, which is um, fascinating. But uh, it's and the inner the intersection with the culture, and how technology has changed that, and particularly um, with snow machines and mechanized travel and, and guns, and the cash culture, uh, needing to pay for all that stuff. Yeah, there's another thing I haven't. Uh, talked about that I mentioned uh, in the book and and that's communication and that's a crazy thing uh, mm-hmm. I've been joking lately that as soon as like one caribou crosses the Kobuk River it's on Facebook and boats yeah. are launching and um, these you know last few falls has been a uh, well I mean there's always a lot of desire to get caribou but then you throw in uh, communication and then you know uh, vastly increased the amount of, uh, of flying passenger airplanes flying over the country, which are all, uh, you know, people looking, holding a phone in one hand and looking down, down in the other. And, uh, you know, that's a, that's a huge thing to be able to fly through the sky and, and, uh, tell your friends, you see caribou, that wasn't something you could do a hundred years ago. Yeah. That, that I like you had a little side note there. You had a comment about how, you know, the, 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 analogy or the comparison of uh, being able to skin and dress an animal, how second nature that was, comparing that to a kid using a a smartphone now and how it's second nature to them. And I think that summed up a lot of the changes that seem to be going on. Yeah, yep, there's a lot of that going on. And then I guess one of the things we haven't talked about is, is, uh, you know, valuing and understanding what to value and that's a, a huge, uh, a huge question nowadays. Is do you teach your kids how to skin caribou leggings, or do you teach them how to download another app? You know, and um, um, it's hard to figure that out. Do you think? And speaking of that, uh, you also talk about the, um, maybe a, I wouldn't call it existential, but a lot of um, the the question of what is my worth. You talk about that in your book. What is the worth of a young person? Is that contribute to some of the challenges that a rural culture uh, has? 
absolutely. You just stepped into a, a giant uh, <laughs> yeah. quagmire or, or a giant, uh, you know, uh, other subject. And, uh, and um, yeah, I, I have a young adult novel I, I wrote that's been languishing for a few years. It probably uh, talks way more about the uh, subject of... Uh, uh, self-respect and self-worth and suicide and, and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a huge issue here, um, where, um, hunting and providing and, and all that knowledge was so important. And then, and then the importance, uh, changed, um, and the, the one piece of knowledge became, uh, uh, having, significantly suddenly significantly less value and and some other new stray uh invention and that knowledge became you know significantly more valuable um that's uh that's hard on people i i uh suggest that that uh going on in the lower 48 now is uh these uh huge changes are are uh, hard on people and and that's one of my uh subjects I want to write more about is um, basically how uh, uh, crazy it is that humans are not uh, aware of how uh, too much change too fast is, uh, damages their uh, their ability to, to live and function and value and relate and, um, and so all that I think is on display here because of the the, the, the uh, continental plates of two cultures coming together over the last couple hundred years. Yeah, and you're in a very unique position, I think, to um, write about that. What would you, what advice do you have for a young, um, whether it's uh, native or non-native youth that are dealing with that change, or even adults that are changing what those change? the rapid pace of change. Yeah, I, I got to be careful because, you know, some of my uh, impulses are to tell people to, you know, not trust technology or not uh, get sucked into it. But everywhere I look, it, you know, it seems like people are in love with technology. And, um, <laughs> you know, that would definitely, definitely be my in, impulse. I would, uh, for years, I greatly wanted to be a motivational speaker for young people and, uh, I don't know, it probably sounds hideously egotistical, but um, I just face so many challenges myself with uh, dealing with, you know, being white, white, surrounded by Native culture, and dealing with not, you know, going out in the world and not really knowing how to be a normal white person, and then um, the whole idea of uh, career and what to do and, and uh, how to relate to people and I'm sure that's why I wrote Ordinary Wolves was, you know, trying to figure out how to relate to humans after growing up much more comfortable with uh, nature and animals. And um, so, yeah, it's hard for me to just come up with, uh, you know, blanket advice. Uh, I guess uh, one of the things I'd like to tell kids is that, uh, you know, the crazy... Uh, uh, things that can come your way with time and uh so if you have this impatient viewpoint as a 16 year old um 
you just never know what these years can bring to you. And um, and I know in my case, I just it seemed like nothing was happening fast enough. And there's a lot more to say on that subject. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it's uh, it, I think it's real tough. And then um, one of the things that that you know I always want to tell people is that is uh, I'm not good at any of these things. <laughs> Don't fool yourself. You know, I think nowadays there's these movies uh, that, that and books that convince people that oh, you're born with this and you're good at that. And, and I, I mean, I disagree. I think uh, anything that it appears I'm good at is just because I'm stubborn and stick with it. Yeah, I think you have a back to the time comment that you have a great story as a kid having someone show up and they were. Uh, I think a white hunter or something, and they were very short on time, and you didn't even know what that meant. <laughs> oh, yeah, the whole idea of uh, not having enough time was pretty boring out along the river with, uh, you know, no uh, neighbors and no uh, <laughs> radio and no TV and any of that stuff. We had plenty of time. But the one thing I never put in the book, uh, a couple things, but um, that came to me yesterday when I was out uh snowshoeing or doing something, I can't remember what I was doing, but uh, I realized that the first time somebody uh, showed up from, I think, back east, and and they uh, referenced, uh, we asked, my brother and I asked them how far something was, New York to New Jersey or something, and they, they gave a, um, a time, we said, how far is it, we wanted a distance, uh-huh. and they said uh, two hours or something, and we were just so irritated and uh, <laughs> not outraged that, that somebody would answer with a, uh, a distance and call it a time. And um, and I was thinking about how it, I still find that ridiculous because what if the road melts? Oh, well, we have ice here, but what if the, you know, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so uh, I should have somehow fit, fit that in there too because that whole relationship with time was uh, was changing and we we my brother and I were far and my family were far behind the, the curve on that <laughs> let's talk about um, some of the things that you're involved with now I know you're involved in the Ambler Road um, and one of the comments you uh, quotes you have in the book are corporations don't value caribou or something like that uh, I don't know if you want to delve into your thoughts on that, and uh, the and, and also the maybe along the same line as how hunting um, is a tool for conservation. Yeah, that's a that's a complex uh, two different things there. I, I think I'll start with the first one, which is you know there's sort of, I really try with my writing to bring people together, and the environmentalist versus hunter. Uh, uh, syndrome uh, <laughs> yeah. bugs me because you know a lot of hunters that I know really care about uh, the land because they they like being out there hunting and or, or they value getting food from the land and stuff and um, and, and a lot of hunters don't a lot plenty of hunters just want to go shoot stuff but um, but uh, back to the you know the the, the Amber Road subject. Um, it's a similar subject in the sense that um, I find it, uh, you know, nonsensical that um, 
that people would uh, uh, say and or believe that, you know, you can bring a road and strip, you know, giant open pit copper mines at the head of the Kobuk River and, and not just, uh, you know, destroy a, a whole lot of uh, things about this land, you know, the, the, the clean water and the, and the, and the, and the animals and then and the culture and on and on, you know, and, yeah. and, and not to even, not to even mention that, you know, cutting that big uh, swap into the, the Brooks Range, which is like the large, one of the largest intact ecosystems on the earth and cutting that swap in and then opening up, uh, you know, just a spider web of trail uh, roads to more and more and more mines is just, uh, it's not what they're saying it is. It's, uh, it's, uh, it would be destroying a lot of things. And, and so if that was, uh, you know, on the table, like we're willing to destroy a lot of things to get this, then, you know, then I would be more inclined to say, well, then that's, that's the subject, but just lying about it is, uh, is well, maddening. Yeah, yeah. When um, you moved on a little bit, uh, one of the things that um, we, you had a, some, you talk about the loss of uh, traditional knowledge and uh, skills, and um, that's, how, how do we preserve as a culture, how do, how do we... Um, uh, preserve those, or not just preserve, but keep them alive. Any thoughts on that? Oh, that's complicated. Um, I uh, I think it has to be done in the opposite direction. I, I think we have to value things, and then and then keep those customs because we value them. Mm-hmm. And so, um, if you just start off with like, oh, we should keep those customs, then if nobody's using them, doing them, practicing them, and valuing them, then it's just a government grant, and it's um, hard to not use a cuss word to describe it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and but um, but I mean, I think that's that goes back to why I wrote this book, which is you know if we if we can stop and, and realize that caribou don't just grow on trees, so to speak, and and they're just there for us to go shoot at when we're bored or hungry. Um, if we can stop and, and look at ourselves and say, you know, I value caribou uh, so much, and then, you know, what needs to be done to um, to protect um, what I what I value? You know, think of it in a greedy. <laughs> go ahead and think of it in a greedy way. Right. Um, and so I feel that way uh, about uh, uh, cultural things, like uh, you know, using a wolf skin. Um, uh, however you might, I, I, um, I just think that if you start with, uh, you know, why and how you value something, then it's an easier path to, uh, you know, keep a track of how to skin and tan that fur, et cetera, you know. That's a, that's a great way. That's a, a great way to sort of wrap up. But uh, one last question is, so what is, um, what is next for you? You talked about a, a, a young adult novel. Um, I assume some hunting. Um, what do you have on your horizon? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I got to go get wood. I got this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I like simplicity in my life, but it's become a little too simple. I spend most of my day and half my night shoving wood in the stove. So, <laughs> yeah, some wood. I got all some wood. But um, as far as writing, I um, 
I would really like to write something humorous uh, about um, the region. Um, and then somewhere on my wish list is I would like to, you know, figure out how to work towards being a, a motivational speaker, but also uh, a comedian. <laughs> Sounds uh, pretty crazy, but yeah, some of those things are, are kind of out there, uh, and, and I've been keeping them out there, but I'd like to do that. And yeah, i got to get that uh, young adult novel rewritten. Um, and it includes a lot of bullying and all that, so I think I'm going to change the time element back to bullying that I understood. I don't understand cyberbullying, and so I think I need to, yeah. to rewrite it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, so... Um, yeah, better let you wrap up there, Paul. I yeah. lost track of time. No, but, no um, that's no, that's um, that's fantastic. Appreciate the conversation there. It made me think about things a little bit differently, and uh, that's always a good thing. Well, we really uh, thank you for being on the show. Uh, we, this is Outdoor Explorer. Uh, we've been talking to Seth Kantner about his new book. It's a wonderful read with amazing photos, um, and it's titled A Thousand Trails Home. And I assume you we can order it through Amazon or um, wherever. So, thank you, Seth. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. My publisher is Mountaineers Books, and they sell it, and I sell it on my website, which is my name, SethCanner.com, and then and then Amazon. And um, yeah, I hope people will you know send it to their friends for gifts, and I hope uh, you know spread. This. I want people to read it. That's yeah. the main thing. Great. Well, that, that wraps up our time. Uh, thanks, Seth, and uh, good luck with um, your future endeavors, and we hope to have you on the show again in the future. Oh, uh, you too, Paul. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening, and to my guest, Seth Kantner, find links to his book on the Outdoor Explorer website. Finally, a big thanks to our producer, Eric Bork. This is your host, Paul Tordak, and from all the hosts at Outdoor Explorer, we'll see you outside. Outdoor Explorer is a production of KSKA Public Radio in Anchorage, Alaska. Theme music is by Portugal, the man. Views expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect the station or its underwriters. You can find Outdoor Explorer on Facebook and in your favorite podcast app. To see what's coming up on Outdoor Explorer and add your voice to the conversation, go to our website at alaskapublic.org. Life Informed, this is Alaska Public Media.